Good morning and welcome to church. What a privilege it is to be here. How is everybody surviving the dog days of summer? I, I don't know about you guys, but we actually found a dead, dried-up snake on our, on our uh, sidewalk yesterday. So even the snakes are dying <laughs> in the heat. Um, you know it's hot in Texas when even the snakes are dying. All right, my name is Lindsay, and I am the director of Antioch Discipleship School, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here. I love this church. This is such a phenomenal community, and in case it's just your first Sunday here, welcome. We have our lead pastor, J.D. Griffin, on sabbatical right now, and throughout his sabbatical, we've had our other pastoral staff, our other board of advisor members, and people from our community like Ryan Walker just coming in to teach us the word of God. And I just want to give a little uh, sneak preview. Next week we have Clark Zonbrecher preaching. He's spoken, preached several times in our discipleship school, and it's always such a privilege to learn from him. So I was like, we got to get him teaching the whole church because I just want to see more of what God's done in him deposited in our community. So that's so exciting. We are about halfway through a series called Church in the Wild, and that's a series in the book of Acts with the idea that the church was never meant to stay within these four walls, but that we were supposed to take the gospel of Jesus Christ out into the wild and do all the things that we see the early church doing out in Austin, out in our everyday lives. I just want to say, if you have ever thought or if you have ever heard that following Jesus is boring, you have never read the book of Acts, and you have definitely never read the book of Acts chapter 10 that we are going to read today, because it is wild. This is an adventure with the Holy Spirit. You see, walking with the Holy Spirit will take you to places you never thought you'd go, will introduce you to people you'd never thought you'd meet, and he'll do through you the impossible things you never thought you'd do. So today we're going to open up our Bibles and see this happening in chapter 10 or your app, and we'll see this going down. Now in Acts chapter 10, there are three different scenes taking place, and I'm not going to read the whole book, but I'm going to give you an e a brief overview of each scene. We're going to see the big picture of what is happening here, and then we're going to spend a little bit more time looking closely at the truths that are being presented in this story. So in the first scene, we're introduced to a man named Cornelius, who is a centurion, which means that he was a Roman soldier occupying Israel in a town called Caesarea, and he was the leader of about 100 other soldiers. It says in verse 2 that Cornelius was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed constantly to God. Now, who has seen the chosen? If you haven't seen it, you need to see it. It's super amazing. But if you've seen it, you have a mental picture of the Roman soldiers already. Except fast forward to, to post-resurrection and ascension of Jesus. So you know that this is very uncommon for a Roman soldier to follow Jesus, to accept Jesus. And Cornelius was one of the first Gentile converts to accept the gospel. We're told that he is a man devoted to prayer, and during one of his prayer times, he experiences an angel of the Lord visiting him. It says in verses 3 and 4, the angel says, Cornelius, he stared at him in terror 
I hear that's common when angels visit, and said, what is it, Lord? He answered, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa for a certain man who is called Peter. He is lodging with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the seaside. The angel leaves suddenly, so he goes and gets two of his men. He sends them to Joppa, which is about 30 miles away. They get Peter, and they head back on their way. There's no details about who Peter is. There's no details about what will happen. Cornelius just obeys, and that is the end of the first scene. In the second scene, we're introduced to Peter. Similar to Cornelius, when he has this divine encounter, he's on a rooftop in prayer. And it says that he was also hungry, so it is likely that he was fasting. And while he was praying, he fell into a trance. And it says in verse 11, he saw heaven open and something like a large sheet coming down and being lowered to the ground by its four corners. And in it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. And he heard a voice saying, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything profane or unclean. The voice said to him again a second time, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. God reiterates this thing, reiterates this three times, and then the thing, which is what the Bible calls it, the thing, was taken up suddenly into heaven. (laughs) This vision ends, and then Peter looks up, and he sees these men that are coming towards him, and the Spirit tells him, Look, these three men are searching for you. Now go down to them. Peter goes down and he says, hey, am I the one that you're looking for? And they say, yes, a man named Cornelius is looking for you. He had this angel appear to him, said, hey, go get Peter, bring him back here. And now we're just kind of here to fetch you. And so they stay the night and the next day they head on to Caesarea. And the third and final scene of the chapter is when Cornelius and Peter meet. Cornelius knows he's coming, so he has essentially assembled everyone he knows in his house. He's assembled his relatives and friends. Peter gets there, and he says, so why did you want me to come here? And Cornelius recaps his experience of the angel speaking to him in prayer and says, the angel told me that you're supposed to tell us something, so now you're here, and what do you want to tell us? And Peter suddenly has this wide open door to speak the gospel to the Gentile audience, which really this is what the book of Acts is all about, is the gospel being spread to the Gentile world. And so with this captive Gentile audience, Peter says, you know the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. The message spread throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John announced. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. We are witnesses to all that he did, both in Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear not only to the people, but to those who were chosen by God as witnesses and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as the judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him. 
that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Isn't that good news? That is why we are all assembled here today, thousands and thousands of years later. And what I love about Peter's delivery is that it's profoundly simple. This is the simple gospel. And that's one of the things that surprised me so much when I went to the Asbury Revival, is that the communication of the gospel was so simple. There's no fancy stories or funny storytelling. It's just the clear, clear proclamation of the gospel that has power. And while Peter was speaking, it says the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the Gentiles began speaking in tongues and praising God. And this scene is what the, the scholars refer to as the Gentile Pentecost, which means what the Holy Spirit did in Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, he now did to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. So Peter says, you all just heard the good news. You received the Holy Spirit. So let's go baptize you all in Jesus' name. And then the gospel through this group spreads through the Gentile world. And this is an experience of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Scripture that is revival. If you've ever wondered if the concept of revival is scriptural, because we don't often use that word as often in Scripture, here it is. It is the preaching of the gospel accompanied by the Holy Spirit's outpouring resulting in salvations and baptisms and global evangelism. I don't know about you guys, but this is what I want more than anything. And this is what us as the church ought to desire more than anything else. This is the reason why we are here, seeing the lost saved, being filled with the Holy Spirit, being baptized in his name, and letting that revival fire just spread around the nations. So now that we've got this overview of the story, off the bat, who initiated and orchestrated this outpouring of the Spirit? The Lord, right? The Lord initiates and orchestrates the outpouring of his Spirit. Only the Father can pour out his own Spirit. He designated the time. He aligned the people he poured out his spirit. He filled the whole room. He gave his gifts. He empowered his people for his ministry. It all starts with him, and it is all sustained by him. And anytime we try to manufacture that experience that only the Lord can actually give, it becomes a performance. We cannot just slap the word revival on anything that we want to do and say, okay, we called it a revival. Now, Holy Spirit, you have to come and pour yourself out, and that's your part of the bargain here. That's not what revival is. It's all initiated and orchestrated by God. Now, we see here in the word that the fact that this revival was poured out by the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that we just get to sit back and wait and take a pass. It looks like Peter and Cornelius actually had quite a job to do to play their role in the outpouring of the Spirit. The first person we're introduced to is Cornelius, and it says in verse 2 that he was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people, and he prayed constantly to God. 
He was a devout man. I love that devout was the best word to describe him. When is the last time you used the word devout to describe someone that you know? I say the word devout needs to make a comeback. We need to start using that word. We need to start saying, actually, I am the devout. We use the word believer often to, dis- to define if someone's a Christian or not. He's a believer. She's a believer. But really, you can become a believer without ever becoming devout. It says that Cornelius prayed constantly to God, and he gave generously to those in need. And if you were just a fly on the wall watching Cornelius live his daily life, you would have said, whoa, this man is devoted. Jesus is his everything. The early church had adopted a prayer rhythm of praying morning, noon, and night. So it's likely that this was one of many times that he had gone away to pray. I want to challenge us all with this. Would people be able to look into your life and define you by what you believe or by who you're devoted to? Beliefs and doctrine are very important, but it should never stop there. Amen? Being a believer is unto being devout. You know what Texans are devoted to? College football. (laughs) I was not born here, but I have been here for 11 years. And I remember the first couple falls that I lived here, I was like, whoa, these people are really into their football. I mean, they designed their life around Saturday game day. And it's not just your football, but it is your university in general. Like choosing your university is like choosing your identity that you want to have like for the rest of your life. Like do I want to be defined as a Longhorn or a Aggie or a Baylor Bear or or, uh, a Texas Tech Reader? Like what am I going to like own as like my identity in Christ for the rest of my life? It's going to say like I'm chosen, I'm a child of God, I'm a beloved, I'm an Aggie. And it's like... You're almost like putting it up there like at that level. That's how devoted people are to like their university. It's like part of, part of, you know, a lifelong commitment. And just in case you're a Texas native here, I just want to inform you that it's actually not like this everywhere. <laughs> it's really not. When my kids get their own little flag football schedules in the fall, they actually make sure that they won't ever have a game that conflicts with the Longhorns game because then the coaches couldn't coach if they had to coach the little six-year-old flag football team and watch the Longhorns at the same time. And every year, I try to host ADS retreat on September in the fall, and I always get in a little bit of trouble because it's like game day, and how could you possibly be hosting anything other than a watch party at this moment, we are devout football fans. And I don't say this to give you a guilt trip the next time you watch football. I think sports are a good, wholesome gift from God. But St. Augustine spoke of this concept of rightly ordered affections, or the opposite would be disordered loves. He essentially teaches that we as people are defined by what we love And when what we love most isn't Jesus Christ, supreme over all things, supreme over football, there will be sin expressed by perpetual discontentment, love of money, love of power, love of possessions, or just endless leisure and entertainment. 
Romans 1 says that we all should worship the creator over the created things. The challenge for us is to rightly order our loves to keep our love for Jesus supreme. Now, the reality of this is it requires sacrifice, and it requires for us to learn discipline of the heart. Not just discipline of the body, but discipline of the heart. We're more familiar with bodily discipline. This is going to bed on time, doing your workout, doing your exercises, drinking enough water, eating more of this and less of that. That's bodily discipline. But discipline of the heart is actually learning how to work up an appetite for God so that what you want more than anything else is Jesus Christ supreme over all things. It says in Matthew 5, 6 in the message, it says, you're blessed when you work up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink and the best meal you'll ever eat. You discipline your heart when you actually say no to your lesser affections and say yes to God more. And this implies that you have autonomy here. You don't just love what you love and have an appetite for whatever you have an appetite for. You cultivate your appetite by what and who you fill your life with. When I went to London last month with some of our ADS students, I got to spend a lot of time with Grace. And if you don't know Grace, she like really loves Jane Austen. And she'll, you'll, she'll talk to you all about the, the books she loves and why she loves them. She's read them all. And she's, she's very unusual for a young 20-something person to have read every Jane Austen book. But I came home and I was like, oh, I got to get Sense and Sensibility from the library. And I, after spending so much time with Grace, I was just like, I, I'm starting to like love what she loves. Now, I did get it from the library. I haven't cracked it open yet. But I will. That, that's a really thick book. But if... What she loves rubbed off on me. And if you want to work up an appetite for God, you've got to get around people who have an appetite for God. You do what they're doing. And a disciplined heart, that means that you pay attention to the most subtle increase or decrease in your hunger for God. Listen, most of my teens and 20s and even some of my early 30s has been about recognizing what decreased or increased my hunger for God, even just by 1%, in owning that what seemed to be fine for other people was not beneficial for me. I'm not talking about overt sin. That The Bible is clear that we flee from that. But what I'm talking about is sometimes I just watch a movie with a friend and I realize afterward I feel kind of spiritually sluggish. Ever like watch something and you're like, I just feel, ugh, I need to like go worship for a little while or something. Or it just dulled my affection for God. Now, if I, I, this kept happening, I kept feeling like, gosh, I'm just, I'm being too extreme, I'm being too religious, I need to just like shake this off and get over it, like just relax a little bit, just ease up on this. But it kept happening over and over and over. And I started realizing maybe I need to stop shrugging this off and just closely check in with my heart and see if this is actually a time to take part in holy leisure and relax and have entertainment, or if it's even worth dulling my affections for God. And now, when I decided to watch something, I'm like, I've got a fire to protect here. 
I have a calling on my life, and I'm not going to dull it and decrease my anointing by just scrolling a little too long or watching a little too long. I've got a calling, and I don't want to drop it. And I would say, you guys all have a calling, and nothing is worth sabotaging your zeal and making you dull. Nothing is worth it. Nothing is worth it. If anything costs you your flame for God, it's too expensive. I felt unusual. I felt extreme, even around other Christians, maybe even felt too religious. And in processing this with God, he would say, what's okay for some is not for you. What's okay for some is not for you. And if that feels like it's resonating right now, it's probably a word from God for you today. This is not... Listen, like, Jesus is like the fun police, and he's coming to suck up all your fun and make sure that every waking moment you spend time with God and you're only reading the Bible and you're only in prayer, you can experience fun and leisure and entertainment to the glory of God. But I want you to see that there's a war for the affections of your heart. There is a war for the hunger for God, and you have to protect and cultivate your own hunger. You are the only one that's responsible for it. The gravity of sin in this world means that we will all naturally drift away from God unless we are up front in our devotion to him. How will you fight to protect your fire? Listen, God's love for us is unconditional, but he uses us conditionally. He uses people that are fully devoted to him. He's used a lot of messed up people all throughout history, and the Bible is full of them. But what he desires is to use people whose hearts are fully consecrated to him. It says in Second Chronicles, and you say, and I said, Lord, I call down your delivering power right now on my child. I call down your delivering power right now on my home. I call down right now your delivering power on my city, on my church, on the lost. And you use your delegated authority to pray in the next outpouring. And I want to say, you have complete permission to use your authority in prayer to disrupt dry atmospheres. To say, this is great, but I'm looking for something that is saturated with the Holy Spirit. This might be a sprinkle, but I'm looking for a flood, Lord. Would you flood my home with your presence? Would you flood my city with your presence? We have permission to disrupt wimpy prayer meetings and say, God, I want your spirit here. I'm not wasting my time on a Friday night doing this if your spirit isn't coming. Use the revival cry or the cry for just more of God to say, Lord, we need you to come that this is nothing, that this is a waste of time if you're not here. Would you come and shake us awake? Would you give us a zeal for your presence? Would you increase our fervor, Lord? Why? So we can just be the crazy Pentecostal praying type of people? I hope we are, that I'm one, but I will say, that's not why. That's not why. It's because it would be a tragedy to live our whole lives without experiencing all we could with the Lord. And that is why I burn for this, because I want to see everything the Lord wants to do in my generation, in our time, come to pass. I want to wind down our time by talking about one of my favorite revivalists in history, 
And this is a man named William Seymour who led what is now called the Azusa Street Revival. William Seymour was an African-American man in the early 1900s that birthed the Pentecostal church. And if you're a charismatic Christian in this room, just to let you know, FYI, this is a charismatic church, you can trace your roots back to the Azusa Street Revival. What the Lord did and taught at Azusa Street Revival has passed down throughout history. The doctrines that were taught, the things that were, that were enhanced in that time, that's been passed down. Thousands of people got saved at Azusa Street. The saved got revived. Miracles of every kind happened. Healings of every kind happened. Getting baptized in the Holy Spirit was a huge um, emphasis. It really had never seen that in many years since at that point. Eventually, Azusa Street sent out missionaries all over the world with just the clothes on their back. Oftentimes, people were speaking in so many different tongues that whatever tongue you were speaking in, they just assumed that that was the country you were supposed to go to. If you started speaking Chinese, they'd just send you off to China. There was all kinds of crazy miracles that happened at this time. And I want to say that Azusa Street actually didn't start with William Seymour's grand vision for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Everybody wanted what he seemed to get, but it was when William decided to start intentionally devoting himself to seeking the Lord that things started to change. He actually quit his job and went jobless and just decided that the Lord would provide everything he needed, everything from the next meal that I eat, everything from where I stay tonight, to spend more time seeking the Lord. He stayed with his friends who lived on a house called Bonnie Bray Street, which is where the origins of Azusa Street Revival is in Los Angeles. And when he got there, he decided to do a 10-day water fast. I guess it's kind of easy to do a 10-day water fast if you don't have any food anyway. But he decided, I'm going to just consecrate this time of, of seeking God with a 10-day water fast, nothing but praying and fasting. And at the end of the 10 days, he invited some friends over to pray together. And the Holy Spirit fell on this group of five people praying. And they just couldn't end the meeting. They just decided, okay, we're going to pray all night. They didn't want to stop. The next day, people heard about it. They prayed all night again. The next day, more people heard about it. They started praying all night again. Until suddenly, people were just like kind of jumping in the windows and like trying to listen in through the back door. They couldn't fit enough people in the house. Eventually, William had to just go out on the front porch and start preaching from the front porch just because he needed a, a space where more people could, could come in and could hear what, what he had to say. And eventually this small group that just kept coming scraped enough money together to buy an old barn. They made it into a church. It was smelly. It was uh, actually still had, still had all kinds of remnants of animal stuff. I hope they cleaned it, but <laughs> it was hot. There were flies it was not like this pleasant, nice, air-conditioned place, and yet people are coming in droves to experience what the Holy Spirit was doing in their midst. And eventually, he designated one room in the loft as the tarrying room. He basically said, hey, if you're here to get filled with the Holy Spirit, go to the tarrying room. 
Stay in that room and tarry in prayer and wait until he falls on you. And you will never be the same again. You will hunger and thirst for God like you never have before. And you see, it actually takes the Holy Spirit to want the Holy Spirit. It takes God to want God. On our own, we're not just going to hunger and thirst for God. But when you get a little taste, he whets your appetite for who he is. And you are like, I will do anything for more of that in my life. Right now, I want us to just kind of turn this room into the tarrying room. And what are we tarrying for? The outpouring of the Holy Spirit right now? I would love that. I think that would be great. But I think we're not ready for that. I think what we're ready for is that the Holy Spirit would make us the devout. That before Cornelius and Peter saw the outpouring, they first had to become the devout. There's a great book by a man named Arthur Wallace, and it's called In the Day of Thy Power, and it's on revival. And on this topic, he writes, Thus, God does see fit to use revival to create spiritual momentum, to accomplish in days what we could never do otherwise in years of normal Christian activity. We must not, however, in our zeal for revival, disparage of what is accomplished in quieter seasons, for God has purposes in these times also. The day of small things is preparation and supplementary for the great day of his power. I share this story of William Seymour and his origins of starting the Azusa Street Revival with a 10-day fast. In this quote from the day of thy power, because I want us to hunger for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that results in salvations and miracles and, and baptism in the Holy Spirit and hunger for God like never before. But I also don't want us to discount the day by day by day ordinary seeking of God. When nothing supernatural seems to be happening, how many ordinary days of devotion do you think Peter went through before he finally got sent on assignment? Before God finally said, hey, here, here's the audience that I need you to communicate the gospel to. There's probably many ordinary times that Cornelius showed up to prayer before the angel visited. How many hunger pains and, and showing up to prayer did William Seymour endure before he finally was completely baptized in the Holy Spirit and saw such a, such a outpouring because of that? Maybe he endured many days when he didn't feel like it and nothing spectacular was happening. I want to ask our ADS alumni to come up and be our prayer team this morning. So if you've done ADS, even if it was like in 2019, you're invited to be a part of the prayer team this morning. Um, these guys have spent a season of their life pursuing God at a rigorous pace. And they dedicated that season to seeking him in, their discipleship, in our discipleship school. I know that we are we're kind of in, in this holy moment right now, and this is really hopefully inspiring, but I do want to burst the bubble saying inspiration to be the devout 
will run out by Wednesday. We get inspiration short-lived. We do not stay inspired to do something for very long. But in Antioch Discipleship School, we have a vision to become devout together. We spend nine months running hard after Jesus at an intensified pace. And we can do it and follow through because we're doing it together in community. That when the inspiration fades and we are in the ordinary day, being the devout, we have a structure and we have people to be accountable to even when we no longer feel like it. I want you to come up and uh, if our students want to come up, sorry to keep putting you guys on the spot, but I really need you guys. I want you to be our prayer team. Nine months is a big commitment and it's a sacrifice. And I want to say anything that is worthwhile is always a sacrifice. Come and talk to one of these students who have been a part of the discipleship school before and they will tell you how God touched them, how God used this season, how God marked their lives in this season and did in them in these nine months what is impossible to do by yourself. Now is the time to start seeking God and becoming the devout. And I have just a few prophetic words that I feel like is for our community I feel like the Lord's just saying there's someone here that you've got this wrestle in your heart right now about doing ADS. That you've got this tug of war, like, should I do it? Should I not do it? Should I do it? Should I not do it? You've got all these valid reasons to do it, and you've got all these valid reasons to not do it. I want to say, if you hear the Lord's voice today, do not harden your heart. Come and do ADS. I think any one of these students will tell you it is worthwhile to spend a season pursuing the Lord. And if that's you, one of these, one of these guys, one of these amazing ADS alum would love to come and pray for you. Second, I felt like the Lord was saying that if you need a fresh baptism of hunger for God, now is the time to come up and get prayed for. If you've been gritting your teeth to be devoted or if you've been using guilt as just like motivation to seek God. I want to, I believe that if you receive prayer right now, he's going to take that, that grit in your teeth and turn it into a falling in love. That you aren't just trying to make it, but you're actually so in love for G with Jesus that you actually want to spring yourself out of bed every morning and seek him. I believe there's fresh mercy and grace that our devotion to Jesus wouldn't be about gritting our teeth, but falling in love. Lastly, I sense the Lord just highlighting this phrase in this passage. It says, Cornelius feared God along with all his whole household. That verse just really stuck out to me, and I sense the Lord was saying, I want to release fresh strength in our house, in this house, for households. I felt like he was saying the households are under attack. And we are meant to be houses of Cornelius where the whole household is walking with the Lord, where the whole household is fearing God. And if right now you need fresh strength to push back the darkness in your home, then you need to come up and receive prayer. 
And also, if there is someone that's a part of your whole household that's not walking with the Lord, I feel like the Lord is saying, today's the day to call it in. Today's the day to call them home. Today's the day that they're coming back. Come up and receive prayer. I believe there's going to be people after the service that get a phone call from someone who's walked from the Lord, walked away from him. That there are going to be houses of Cornelius that are strengthened where every person in the family is walking with Jesus. So if any of those three resonated with you, I just say, come up, come up. There's nothing special about the front, but there's something miraculous that happens when you partner with people in prayer. And God does in that small group of praying what could not happen by ourselves. So God, I thank you. I thank you so much, Lord, that you are mighty in our midst this morning, that your presence has been so sweet. And we ask, Lord, that you would make our community the devout, that we would be deeply devoted to you, Jesus, that you would be our morning, noon, and night. You would be our one thing, that you would be supreme over every affection of our heart, that every longing in our heart would find its fulfillment in you. And Lord, I pray For anyone in this room that's wrestling with the decision to go to discipleship school, Jesus, I pray right now for a full surrender to whatever you have for people. I pray for a full surrender to a season of being consecrated to you, to seeking you intensely. I pray for a season in their life where you, God, would become not only just an activity in their week, but you would become their everything. And Lord, I pray for households. I break off any demonic assignment that's been lodged against households this week. And I pray, Jesus, that you would strengthen parents, that you would strengthen moms and dads, that you would strengthen every person in the family. God, to become a righteous family, that they would become righteous people who who fear your name, Lord. And I ask, Lord, for prodigals to come home today. I ask, Lord, for anyone not walking with you, Jesus, to have this this unction in their spirit of coming back to you. And Lord, I pray that you would raise up Antioch Austin to be a praying house, that we would pray in the next, next outpouring of your spirit, that you would let hunger arise in our community, Lord, that we would be the hungry people praying it in. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for all you have done today. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to steward and amplify the work you started in us today. In Jesus' name, amen.